This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. What's not to like about political stories that encompass not only New York City, Queens specifically, but reach into Long Island's northern shore in Nassau County? The special election this week in New York's 3rd Congressional District to replace expelled Republican Rep. George Santos is over, with Democrat Tom Suozzi defeating Republican Maisie Pillip for the honor of representing the birthplace of Walt Whitman and the one-time home of F. Scott Fitzgerald when he was gathering string for The Great Gatsby. Here to run us through it is our own Mel McIntyre. She is our one of our political reporters on the campaign desk. Mel, welcome back to Political Theater. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. And Jacob Rabashin, the deputy editor at Inside Elections. Jacob, welcome. Hi, Jason. It's It's been a little while. Uh, and for both of you, this is your first time on YouTube uh, for the Political Theater YouTube uh, uh, experience as well. So uh we're all excited we're all you know excited about this thank you for for coming on and also i realize that it has probably been a long week uh with this although tuesday night could have been longer i was not expecting a 10 o'clock call by the associated press uh jacob did that surprise you a little bit too yeah absolutely uh historically new york has been pretty abysmal at election night reporting and in fairness to that uh long and and august trend nassau county still pretty bad at reporting vote uh vote on on the Doesn't night get of. better in the suburbs <laughs> but but queens I, I think queens was the big shock um queens was actually very quick to report most of its vote um we got almost all of the queen's vote uh, before we got really any votes out of Nassau. And that was important because even though Queens is just 20% of the district, um, we knew pretty much exactly how well Swazi needed to do in Queens to uh, have an insurmountable lead. And he exceeded that mark. And so when it came, when the votes came in and we saw that with 70, 80% of the votes, Swazi had this, you know, 20 plus point lead in Queens, that was basically the ball game. And it was once we got even just a little bit from Nassau that the AP and then the networks felt comfortable calling the race because it was clear Pillip wasn't going to put in such an overperformance in Nassau uh, to counteract Swazi's uh, strength in Queens. And, and also, I, I note too that the, the 10 o'clock calls by the by the AP and the networks or 10-ish uh, calls were came as she was conceding. <laughs> like she was, she was conceding the race, you know, uh, on like New York one and so forth <laughs> or whatever. And, and that, and they were like, oh, we're not going to, you know, get ahead of that. And then it's like, oh yeah, the, this is over. Um, and it ended up being, is, is it still an eight point margin? I thought I said with 93 or 94%, it was an eight point margin. Is that right? Does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So Mel, you uh, you were up there uh, in in the district a couple weeks ago with ace staff uh, photographer Tom Williams as well, capturing some images, capturing some some uh, reporting. Like, tell us about what you saw on the ground because I mean, all indications were again, you know, this was going to be closer than than it was. So, what what did you get from a sense of when you were up there talking to people? 
You know, it was a little bit of a weird special election on the ground. And the most obvious example of that I can give is that I was up there the first weekend of early voting. Early voting started the Saturday that I got up there. And Mozzie Pillip was not holding any public events. Um, She was not, you know, publicizing any campaign events. It looked like from her social media that, you know, maybe she made a few unpublicized stops somewhere. But that, you know, was an interesting choice by her campaign to not be having public events. On the other hand, I went to three different Tom Swasey events that weekend, all tied to early vote. You know, he had... um, uh, a campaign office, you know, people, a Women for Swazi event, for example. He had representatives from um, pro-choice groups. He had um, New York Congresswoman Grace Meng there. And then, you know, his staff brought people down the road to the early voting location so that everybody could start voting. He did this several times throughout the weekend um, and actually more times that he didn't even notice the reporters kind of thing. So that was definitely, you know, the difference in how they were, the campaigns we're choosing to campaign was an interesting choice. But the other thing that I picked up on just from conversations, um, you know, around town while I was there was that people didn't really seem to know there was a special election going on. Um, you know, there were campaign signs um, all throughout the district as we drove around. But people who I talked to, you know, when I would ask, do you feel like people know this is happening? Everyone told me no. Um, so I, th- I think some of that is you know, normal for a special election. We typically expect lower turnout, a little bit of a weird thing. Um, but coming after such a high profile expulsion of George Santos and then, you know, <laughs> followed by the fact that this just got so much national attention, I did think it was interesting that people kind of didn't seem aware that it was happening. Yeah, I, I it, it was, again, like you said, special elections are their own little universe. I mean, like you, you typically get only the most dedicated people who are tuned into politics or feel strongly about like the issues or the district to turn out. Um, but in general, I mean, Jacob, this, this district is, even though it went for Biden, um, and has been represented by a Democrat, you know, for a long time. And this was Steve Israel's, you know, district, uh, before Swazi won it in uh, a, f- a few years back, and then it was an open seat that Santos won. Um, like th- this has been like it's not a it's not a lock for Democrats. No, not at all. Um, you know, Long Island is pretty swingy. Honestly, you know, it's a region that's seen a lot of political shifts over the last couple of decades. I mean, you go back to when Swazi kind of first came on the political scene in the 1990s and and 2000s. And, you know, he won the Nassau County executive race in 2001. And that was like a a huge deal uh, because Nassau County was a uh, Republican stronghold. He was the first Nassau County executive to be a Democrat in over 30 years. And so we saw kind of the, the Democrats come into power in the early 2000s. Then there was a backlash. Swazi loses two Nassau County executive races back to back. Um, and in, 20, in 2009 and, and 2013, Republicans sweep back into control. Then there's a big corruption scandal. Democrats come back. Then Republicans come back uh, in in kind of starting in 2019 and, and continuing onwards. So, uh, yeah, at, at the local level, um, this district has seen 
a lot of back and forth political shifts. Uh, and, and even though at the federal level, Democrats have typically been more successful, right? The Democratic presidential nominee has won this seat uh, narrowly, but still, um, you know, by a few points in the last couple of elections. And then, you know, the state level folks, Schumer and Cuomo back when he was running for governor, um, were were very dominant here. Uh, you know, the the local political dynamics always indicated that there was the potential for Republicans to be successful at all levels of politics. And so 2022 rolls around. We see Lee Zeldin put up such a strong performance at the top of the ticket as the Republican gubernatorial nominee, and he really drags the entire GOP with him in this district, every single Republican statewide. Yeah, Long Island guy too. Yeah, you know. yeah, no, exactly. I think this was, yeah. you know, when when it became clear that Zeldin was a real threat in that governor's race, it was because he had such strength on Long Island. There are a lot of people out there on Long Island. Um, it's a it's a decent chunk of the state, and so uh, his performance there led the way for every other statewide Republican to carry this third district, uh, which was really incredible. I mean, you had guys who spent maybe under $100,000 on their statewide races, beating Chuck Schumer and Tom DiNapoli and Tish James uh, in this district. And and Mel, this was, um, I mean, there's the trends, you know, which we just talked about, but the also just right now, the particularly with such an emphasis on immigration with the National Republican Party on down, Swazi really was, was, you know, balancing a lot of different messaging. I mean, you know, the, obviously the Democrats, you I mean, you, you wrote uh, a story going into the race that earlier this week that this was going to be like, which message is going to break through because Democrats want to emphasize abortion rights, but they kind of have to address immigration. Talk about like how this fine line that Swazi had to, to walk uh, in order to like sort of hit all of the issues that are going to be important in a district like this. Yeah, I think it was interesting. We've seen Democrats ever since the Supreme Court issued the Dobbs decision really focus on abortion um, as a messaging point, obviously in the 2022 midterms, but as well as in special elections and other kind of offbeat elections that we've seen in the last couple of years. And Suwazi certainly campaigned on abortion. Um, It was a part of his stump speech whenever he was out talking to people. But immigration really took over here, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, immigration in New York is has been really prevalent as migrants have been flown to the city, um, come out to districts like this one kind of right outside the city. And it's really been something that people have had to grapple with and have seen firsthand as opposed to just being something that they might see on the news or something like that. And as well as the fact that in Congress, immigration has sort of been um, the top policy debate in the last couple of weeks with we saw the um, bipartisan Senate package come forward, and we saw Republicans um, really before it was even officially unveiled, you know, turning against it. Um, and so while Swazi, you know, maybe this wasn't the number one thing for him to talk about, he really was able to talk about this package and how he would support it and criticizing Republicans for not supporting it, really able to cast himself as a centrist and point to previous work he had done while in Congress. Um, for six years before he left to run for governor. So he was really able to talk about this in a way that I think must have resonated with voters. Now, I think, you know, a question going forward is, can other Democrats respond to that? Can they follow him in a way that, um, you know, if he doesn't have the same, if they don't have the same experience that he'd had going forward. And I also, 
you know, um, Jacob and I were both at a pen and pad yesterday with the DCCC chair, Susan Del Benet. She was really talking about abortion a lot too. So I don't think that it's necessarily a sign that Democrats are going to stop talking about this issue that's been so successful for them. But it does kind of show ways that, you know, an issue that has typically been a strong issue for Republicans can also be a positive for Democrats. And I I can't help but think that Republicans perhaps unwittingly kind of helped Swazi, you know, by shooting down this bipartisan, you know, border, you know, security package that like Jim Lankford or an Oklahoma Republican had helped, you know, uh, construct over several months that, you know, they could, they did, they've got the thinnest of reads anyway, you know, with, with to, to hold on to on the immigration issue, uh, because the, the top of the ticket, because Biden, you know, is perceived as like kind of opening the borders. That's the message that they're trying to communicate. But then now, you know, Swazi was able to say, you know, in the last you know week or so, hey, we're trying. And we're, we're, we're negotiating across bipartisan lines. Again, he gets to brandish that bipartisanship as a, as a model. And, and we're ready to do this. But like this, this thing didn't even get out of the gate because the speaker is beholden to the most conservative parts of his party. And it just, it, it seemed to, if maybe if, if it best, what you're looking to do is neutralize it as a Democrat, it seemed to work. Yeah. And I think, you know, he was really able to play up like you said, James Lankford, you know, this is a conservative Republican. This is not somebody who we often see in the- Rhino from Connecticut or something. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and, you know, Mozzie, um, a few weeks before the election, you know, kind of came out against the package, siding with most other House Republicans. Um, and so he was really able to sort of change this and be like, look, I'm the person who wants to actually get something done on this issue. Um which, you know, if that might have been what voters wanted there rather than, you know, the question of do voters want Republicans to have this as a campaign issue in November? Jacob, the I mean, Pellip was a very, you know, like not uh, your, your kind of typical Long Island Republican, you know, kind of Rick Lazio, Peter King type, you know, candidate. I mean, she's um, she's an immigrant. Uh, she's an Ethiopian Jew. She's black. Uh, she's a registered Democrat <laughs> uh, who's writing on the Republican line who said that she was going to change her registration. Uh, how much, I mean, this is always a you know weird issue to, to bring into this, but how much was race, you know, and her background a factor in, in this race from, you know, like just looking at the demographics of the, of the district itself, it's a pretty diverse um, district, but like anytime one candidate is white and one candidate is black, the race does come into the issue. Yeah, I, I don't know how much race played in on on that angle, at least. I mean, the district is pretty diverse. It doesn't have a, a, a very significant black population. It does have, you know, large pockets of Asian American voters and and some Hispanic voters as as well and South Asian voters. Uh, I I am a little hesitant to ascribe kind of you know, a a, a a racial aspect to her loss necessarily. I mean, look, this is the same district where Republicans lined up to vote for a gay, half-black Brazilian man last cycle by an overwhelming margin, right? I don't think that you would have had such support for George Santos um, against, again, a guy... Uh, Robert Zimmerman, who was like classic old school Long Island, um, 
you know, very much fit the part uh, of 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 politicians from the district. Um, so I, I I don't know how far I'd go in that direction. I, I think that if anything, it was probably her, her background was an asset. It was a huge asset to her. But she's campaign. also in the military. And she was really defense force. She was she, was, she yeah. was in the IDF. And look, this district has a significant Jewish population. It has especially it has a significant uh, Persian Jewish population, which is, you know, made up of, of a lot of immigrants and first generation Americans who fled Iran after the revolution. Um, you know, it, it has significant immigrant populations from other parts of the world. Uh, and those were uh, communities that Pillip really sought to leverage her background when when speaking to. I mean, the Persian Jewish population was already kind of her base in Great Neck. That's who she represented in the county legislature. She had really deep ties there. A lot of them, you know, a, a lot of them registered Democrats like she was who who were never going to vote for Tom Swasey. So uh, look, I, I, I think that um, her background on, on balance certainly was an asset. The fact that she had this super compelling story, the fact that post October seven, she, you know, could could lean on her biography as as a former IDF soldier to to speak with with uh, a, a level of personal connection to what's going on in Israel that really no one else, uh, you know, running for office these days uh, can can hope to achieve. Uh, I think all of those were positives for her and and probably had a big part to do with you know why she was selected as the nominee in the first place. I don't know. I certainly didn't hear when I was up there kind of a a, a hesitance from anyone to support her because she was a black woman. One one of the things you noted in your uh, story or for your takeaways story, Mel, was was that kind of out of the gate the the presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump posted on his uh, social media platform Truth Social that uh, this was a foolish woman. Uh, so you know, it, I don't know what uh, I mean. Obviously, we don't know what the the um, future for Pillip is. She's relatively young, certainly for politics, certainly for Washington. Uh, she's young, um, but it, that that had to have stung. <laughs> Like not just her personally, uh, when you know powerful people go after you, but also just the the county in the you know Republican officials who were like, no, we're trying to like you know show that we're a diverse party, and we get the guy who's at the top, you know, saying a foolish woman. Like I can't, I wonder about like her future now in Republican politics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting the statement that Richard Hudson, the NRCC chair put out after the race was called was that she has a bright future in politics. And then that Trump statement came out sort of casting a doubt on, you know, would Republican voters choose her? They have a primary in June, I believe, um, to pick the nominee for the full term in November, who will theoretically go up against Tom Suozzi. Um, Santos is available. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing says he can't run again. (laughs) That would be something. Um, That would be an interesting one for sure. But yeah, I mean, before the special election, you had several candidates from both parties who were running for this seat, raising money. So, you know, we haven't really heard from anyone so far that unless it's come through in the last couple of hours and I've missed it, that has sort of said I'm definitely running again or I'm not running. But I think you'll definitely see a number of Republicans running for this seat and whether or not Mazi is included in that group. We'll see. I mean, I think with Trump's statement, she had sort of tried to walk a line with Trump, I think, throughout the campaign. 
you know, for a while she didn't really seem to want to comment one way or another. And then sort of in the last, I would say probably two weeks, she sort of seemed more open to him, um, you know, saying that if he wanted to come campaign with her, which he did not, he would be welcome um, and sort of seeming more open to that. But I mean, her challenge there is that obviously this is a blue state. The district went for Biden by eight points four years ago. Um, so it's not clear if, you know, voters there have all of a sudden had a change of heart to Donald Trump um, broadly outside of, you know, the core Republican base. Right. Jacob, uh, you and Nathan moved your rating of this from toss up uh, to to tilt Democratic. Talk about some of the reasoning behind that for for the November race. It was a yeah. toss up well, until so, Tuesday night. <laughs> so so we, we actually we moved it to lean. So we moved it to two categories. Uh, yeah. Look, I, I think that it's it's a reflection of a, a pretty fundamental change in the status quo. We've gone from what was a Republican held seat in a swing area to a Democratic held seat in in a, a swing area, but not just a, a seat held by a Democrat, but but a seat held by a Democrat who is functionally a multi-term incumbent, right? I mean, he's been out of office for a year and and a month, uh, give or take, right? He'll get sworn in 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 two weeks. So really, we're looking at kind of a continuation of of uh, of six the past six seven years of of Swazi with kind of a brief Santos interregnum. Um, but but functionally, he's not a freshman, right? He's not a freshman Democrat. I don't think that's a fair way to think about him. Uh, he just won an election by uh, a decent margin. And this is this is an area that we still anticipate uh, Joe Biden to carry, even if he uh, even if it's significantly more narrow than than his his 2020 win, right? Like he won this district by eight points in 2020. Uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility that this could be a two point race in the presidential election. I think Long Island has shown that it is uh, very fed up with Biden and in a way that, uh, and more open to Trump in, in ways that like a lot of the other suburban parts of the country maybe are unhappy with Biden, but still more Trump skeptical. I think there's something about Long Island that does in fact make it more likely that Trump could be successful out here in ways that he wasn't in 2020. Um, but uh, on 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 kind of basic, you've got a Democratic incumbent with a bunch of demonstrated strength in a district that was carried by Biden by a decent margin in 2020. And a very unsettled Republican field. We don't know who the candidates are going to be. And they've just taken this big loss, their first big loss in the area in four years. So all of that speaks to a Democratic advantage. The other thing that's going on here, of course, is that uh, we're heading into a redistricting process. Yes. Um, as as we're re- as we're <laughs> recording this, the the Independent Redistricting Commission might forward their recommendations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that so, might alter, like, a, specifically these sort of suburban districts around New York City. Exactly, exactly. So who knows what this district is going to look like? Not just when the IRC gets done with it, but the IRC is just the first step in a process that ultimately ends up in the Democratic-dominated state legislature, and. We'll see what they do. They got slapped down last time when they tried to gerrymander the heck out of the state, especially on Long Island, right? Long Island looked drastically different. This district, the third district, what they tried to do with that district last time, they took it up to Westchester, 
right? They crossed the Long Island Sound in an attempt to shore up this seat. You had Alessandra even, even more of a journey from Queens to Nassau. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, we, we you you had Alessandra Biaggi, who was a state legislator from the Hudson Valley, running in this seat. Um, <laughs> so, the, the, who knows what the bounds are for for what the state legislature will do? I, I I do think that it is less likely they significantly alter this seat now that Swazi has won it, uh, because again he is. Uh, going to be the favorite heading into the fall. And so they have to extend themselves less to help him. And I think that frees them up to probably go after the other two vulnerable Republicans on Long Island, Nick Lalota out in the first district and Anthony D'Esposito down in the fourth. And yeah, just to like the, you know, some, maybe people who are not from New York or not from the Northeast, you know, or, or New England, like you are Mel, uh, you know, like they, they may be listening to this and this thing, like how, I mean, the, how different could it be Westchester to Nassau County or whatever? And it's just like, you have no idea folks. I mean, like <laughs> how weird and, and, and like territorial, like some of these places are, I mean, there are bagels that you can only get in Nassau County that you can't get if you go to Queens or Brooklyn. Like the everything egg bagel, uh, like it's not available in New York City. You can't get it there. You can only get it on Long Island, on, on in in Nassau and Suffolk County. I mean, it's just like it's, it's this weird, like part of the universe. And I, I mean, granted, like the three of us are, this is what we do for a living, right? Like we live for these sort of things. But like New York is even more weird than other weird parts of the country. <laughs> Mel, we also like some of the consequences of this is that we have one fewer uh, Republican uh, in the House, uh, in, and it, the margin wasn't like particularly uh, huge to begin with. I mean, this I, I I thought about this that on Tuesday evening, the House impeached mm-hmm. uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, by one vote, uh, and then two hours later, Swazi was declared <laughs> the winner in this in this district so it's just uh you know like the 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 margins that we're talking about are just so tight yeah i mean that vote they it really worked out timing wise for republicans that majority leader scalise was able to return to washington after his cancer treatment you know before tom swazi is going to be sworn in um such tight numbers the week before we had obviously seen that go down on the floor um in pretty dramatic fashion you know, I don't know. Uh, yes, it makes a slim margin even slimmer. Does it functionally make it that much more difficult for Republicans? No, I don't think so. We've already <laughs> seen them looking to put bills under suspension. So I don't think that this necessarily like, like, I don't think this is going to change like bills that could have passed by one vote. I don't think there's a lot of too many of those out right. there. Um, but it just really underscores and does, I guess, you know, it's one less vote when you're counting, but it just underscores the slim margin. And for Democrats, it's one less seat that they need to flip to win back the majority next year or this right. year. Yeah. Now now they can just focus on Mike Lawler and D'Esposito and Lalata, the, you know, the, some of the uh, folks you just mentioned, uh, Jacob, the minute they're they're there now. The, the 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 majority runs through Long Island and the Hudson River Valley, it seems. <laughs> Well, Jacob, Mel, thank you very much. You know, I, I know, um, you know, this is this is what we live for. I don't know if other people live for it, uh, but like, I love talking about this stuff. I, I, 
I still uh, want to try that everything egg bagel at some point, uh, although it requires it does require, you know, a, a different passport to get out to Nassau. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll yeah. bring it back for you next time. <laughs> But uh, yes, our, uh, our 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 colleague here uh, at uh, at at uh, CQ Roll Call, uh, Dakota Braun, a, a Long Island native, was the one who clued me in on the everything egg bagel, which I had oh. never heard of, and I consider myself up on on the many different iterations uh, that that are available for uh, for that little bit of gluten uh, uh, goodness. Uh, anyway, uh, Jacob Mel, thank you so much for talking about this. We'll have you back on another time. Welcome to the YouTube, you know, part of it again. And uh, thanks again for uh, for walking through an incredibly complicated place here on political theater. <laughs> thanks, Jason. Thanks.